You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. We're watching a debate between John Lennox and Richard Dawkins, and a number of things struck me as I was watching the debate. These were very clever people, (laughs) but both of them were. One, an avid believer, and the other, of course, an atheist. And yet both, giants, intellectually speaking. And it got me thinking, well, how is it that on the one hand, you can have such a, such a clever man as John Lennox, who, yes, to, to him, faith in God is not a problem. And yet to the other man, Richard Dawkins, faith is a very, very big problem. I think as, as well about the two brothers, Peter Hitchens and Christopher Hitchens. Again, one a believer in the other, an atheist. Both very, very clever men. It's the funny thing about faith is it doesn't seem to be about intellect or reason. The most simplest person can understand it. You can have a Mother Teresa who understands that she is loved by God and gives expression to that love by serving the needs of the poor. Or you can, you can have a thief on the cross who has basically spent most of his life characterized by greed, but in the last moment understands his need for God and cries out. It's an interesting thing about faith. It's the great leveler or the great equalizer. And, and who are we to share our faith? Well, we've been exploring that over the last few weeks and um, uh, talking about that, that aspect of our Christian faith, which is finding ways to, to share what is most central and key to our life, finding ways to share that with other people as well. This is actually part five. You can find all the other, other parts um, on, online on our podcast, but, but learning to share our faith. In particular, it seems like a, well, it seems like a huge responsibility when we, we think about the fact that we are sharing God's story. We are, as it were, his his, his spokespeople, and, uh, and trying to give an account. Um, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, who is up to such a task? Very few of us feel equipped. It is as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This Paul's encouragement to the, to the Corinthian church. Two interesting things we note in that verse is, is this is God making his appeal through us. God is wanting to tell his story. He has a story to tell. And he wants to tell his story through us. So I guess in one sense, as his ambassadors, as those who are representing him, we can be somewhat encouraged by that fact. We don't have to actually be the greatest theologians on earth, although all of us are, by the way, theologians. All of us think about God and and to some extent study. It's just how well do we think about him? But, but in endeavoring to be theologians and to be those that, that can be used of God so he can make his appeal effectively through us, let's be encouraged by the fact that this is, this is actually God, God speaking through us. We talked about the fact that um, to be his ambassadors, firstly, we need, to, we need to notice people. And we live in an ever-increasing uh, busy, frantic pace of life in which it's very, very easy to get caught up. And it's, it's very easy to not notice people. 
And in fact, I don't know if you're like me sometimes, but sometimes in the busyness, I do catch myself with head down and just in a zone, trying not to notice people because I notice too many people. And, and honestly, sometimes you can feel in overload. Does anyone else do that or is it just pastors? Yeah, okay. I, I think there are some others guilty as charged. So, but, but to actually uh, adopt that posture of, Lord, would you please slow me down now? Help me not to be worried about my schedule and everything else that is kind of on my mind. And I've got to tell you personally, the last few weeks have been a real challenge for me. But please just slow me down and help me to notice what, what you notice. Then, of course, when we have opportunity to actually engage with people, to take time to listen to them. And then, often as the Spirit guides us and leads us, we get opportunities to share. It's, it's been fascinating over the last number of weeks, weeks, the number of people who have come to me and said, you know, Stuart, I know you don't plan homework, but I think God was giving me some homework. Um, uh, was it Beck, Beck Muntz came up to me uh, after church last Sunday, and, and she'd just been sharing an opportunity that she had had to share her faith at university with, with someone of the Muslim, Muslim belief. And, uh, and then she said, guess what happened this week? I said, what? So I got the knock on the door. Really? Yes. Do you know who was there? No. Mormons. And, uh, and she just happened to have a t-shirt on saying, I love coffee and I love God, um, which I don't know that that went down so well, either of them to, with the Mormons. But, but she had homework. And I don't know. I, I think a number of you others have had some, some similar homework as well. So when we get the opportunity to, to share... We, we share, I guess, two things. We share, firstly, our story. Um, and we talked about the power of testimony. And, and this, that you do have a story to tell. And it's not the story of way, 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 way back when you were three years of age or wherever it was that, that you first encountered God and understood his grace in your life. But, but, but no, every day you have a story of, your, of encountering God. Today you have a story of encountering God. Tell people the impact of God on your life today. And just the power of testimony as you're able but the other part of this is his story. Sure, you want to you tell your story, but you also want to, want to tell people his story. He, and by the way, he has a great he, story. Uh, the, some people have already worked out the little, little way in which his story is actually history. History is, is a record of, of God's, God's story. You know, I was encouraging us to be good theologians before. Just by way of an encouragement, good theology is not what you think about God. That's lovely, whatever you think about God. It's a very, very nice opinion that you might have. But good theology is not what you think about God. Good theology is what God thinks about himself. And that's what we need to get our heads into. What does God think about himself? What does God say about himself? What is God's story by his, his own words? God's story is, is not your words about him, but it is his words in you. God's words in you. That's, that's his story. And it's a matter of, of letting, letting that out. Often, um, you find that 
before you prepare yourself to share a little bit of God's story, God has already been at work. This is a little principle some missiologists call eternity in people's hearts. It's the way in which God is already on mission and and explaining his story to people somewhere deep in their hearts. He's planted a little bit of a seed there to, to help them to, to understand um, who he is. I, I recall in, in a particular country, a good friend of mine, Ashley, he was the captain of the ship, and uh, a particular man wanted to speak to the captain because um, on the MV Doulos, uh, he knew that this was a ship full of, full of Christians and, and he wanted to speak to the highest person because in that society that they were living in, well, he was, he was pretty, pretty, uh, at, a, at a pretty high level in that society. So, so he asked to speak to the captain. Ashley was available and he said, yes, how can I help you? And he, he explained that he was the son of a, of a local imam. And that uh, in, in this particular town, it was expected that he would follow in his father's footsteps and he would be the next imam, the next religious, you know, Muslim religious leader in that particular town. And he said, but, but, but I'm a little bit troubled at the minute because I've been having some dreams. And Ashley said, let's find a quiet place and have a, have a chat. So they found a little quiet place and, in the lounge room and Ashley said, tell me about your dreams. And he said, well, well they involve a, a, a particular central figure. And he's, he's just, I'm captivated by him. He's, he's, he's in white clothing and, and he, his eyes shine like fire. And, and he, this is bizarre, he has this white horse. And, and like, I, none of this makes any sense to me. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen any movies, read any books. This is just coming out of the blue for me. What do you think it means? And Ashley said, can I, can I read a, a, a part, portion of scripture to you? And he, and he said, okay. And so Ashley opens to Revelation and he, and he reads about John's, John's picture or revelation of the Christ as, a, as, a, as one dressed in white and on a white horse. And, and as he reads the description, this young man says, that's him, that's him. And even other details that were recorded in Revelation that this man you know, hadn't even disclosed to Ashley at this point. He said, yes, that was in the dream as well. And the young man is suddenly realizing that God had already been working in his heart and mind to help him understand this moment. And, uh, um, and so he did the most remarkable thing. He said, how? This is Jesus. How can... How can I become a follower of Jesus? And Ashley had the, had the joy of leading him in prayer to become a follower of Jesus right there in that, in that dining room. And he did a most remarkable thing. He had his Quran with him. And he said, do you have a bin? Remarkable. You know, God is often at work telling his story before we actually get involved and, and are going to explain it. And we can have confidence that God is already telling his story. Well, we've been looking at a, at a, at a particular passage um, in John chapter 4 of Jesus engaging a Samaritan woman at a, at a well. And, uh, and we learn a few things from, from this particular story. Firstly, when it comes to explaining God's story, what is it that God wants? We, we read in, in John chapter 4 verses, verses 23 to 24, the time is coming, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, indeed it's here now, when 
true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth because the woman had asked Jesus a question about where is the proper proper place to worship Jesus. And he distracts her, redirects her, her thoughts and attention to it's not about a particular place that you're going to worship God, but it's how you worship God. And so he explains, the Father is looking for those who will worship him this, in this way, in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the first thing that's helpful to notice when it comes to God's story is he is looking for more worshipers. Um, John Piper says, and it's very, very beautiful and succinctly put, uh, mission exists because worship doesn't. One day we'll be in heaven and there will be no more mission. There will be no need for it because God will have his worshippers. But God is looking for worshippers, but not just any worshippers. I guess we look around today and we think people are worshipping God in lots of different ways. But not all of those ways are acceptable. In fact, there are only two ways that are acceptable. The worshippers that God is looking for is the worship that comes from the Spirit and is offered up in truth. What, what does that mean? Actually, just a, just a chapter previous, Jesus has this, this encounter with a, with a Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus. In the previous chapter, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Imagine, imagine the scene. It's dark, and he's not going to be seen. There is this kind of radical preacher in town, but but Nicodemus is genuinely seeking God. He is a genuine worshiper of God. And he knows, even though he's a Pharisee, he knows that there are some, some things wrong with their system of religion. So late at night, he goes to find this radical teacher. He's probably feeling a little bit naughty. Down the streets he goes, all covered up, knocks on the door, and, and he comes in, and, and, and Jesus and those with him offer him hospitality and by candlelight. He actually asks Jesus exactly these questions. And, and he says, well, how? How is it possible to be born again and somehow offer that worship to God that is done by your spirit? And Jesus replies, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, just we'll pause, pause there. You're going to be tempted to read on, I know. But just pause there for a minute. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. Let's just cast our minds back a little bit. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's not a geopolitical type kingdom. The kingdom of God is wherever the king reigns. Who is the king? God. So wherever the, and remember how Chip, Chip Kirk put it back on our virtual camp, the, the rap of God, the rule, the authority, and the power. The kingdom of God is wherever the rule and the authority and the power of God are demonstrated. And that is in a person's life. If a, if a person has accepted the rule and the reign of God, I declare you to be king, they have stepped into the kingdom of God. If they, if they hold their hand out to God and say, I do not accept your rule, I do not accept your reign, you are no longer, you are not in the kingdom of God. All right, so that's the kingdom of God is wherever the king reigns. That's the rule of God. And, and, and so Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is he saying there? To accept the rule of God, you have to be born again. Well, this is confusing for Nicodemus. And he's just, he's just wondering well, how that might work. He's wondering if there's some sort of new age rebirthing experience. But no, says Jesus. He says, 
I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The water is often and would have been to Nicodemus a a symbol of a new start, a fresh start. And so Jesus is indicating here to be born again. I'm I'm saying you have to have a new start, like a fresh start, a whole fresh start. You know, the the typical typical Jew would would think about the fresh start that the nation of of, of Israel had through the Exodus, going through the, the waters there. Water was often associated with cleansing and a brand new start. So Jesus says, you need a new start. You need to be born again. And then... For this worship to be true, it needs to to come from the Spirit of God as well. Um, The Spirit is the means by which now you can be a a true worshiper. You have have often associated your worship through, through, you know, outward things, doing this, doing that, and so forth. Lots of different religious ways in which you reckoned that you might be right with God. Well, none of that actually counts. The true worshippers, the worshippers that God is seeking, they are people who are actually worshipping him from deep inside themselves. The very spirit within them has been brought alive by the spirit of God. This is what Jesus is alluding to. Well, how can this be? How does, how does somebody become born again as such? And then Jesus answers again with Nicodemus. He says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned But the Son of Man has. He's come down from heaven. Now, again, we'll just pause there for a moment. Here is Jesus' credentials. He's been talking about what's an acceptable witness. Who is an acceptable witness? Here are his credentials right on the table. He's saying, you can believe anyone you want, but no one, by comparison with myself, is worth believing. You can trust me. Who else has been to heaven? Huh? Who do you know that's been to heaven and come back again with a report? Well, I'll tell you, I have. So here are Jesus' credentials. You can trust me as a witness. Listen to me. Um, and then he goes on and he says, And as Moses was lifted, or Moses, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up as well, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is, in other words, Nicodemus, this is not something that you can do. He's asking the question, how can I be born again? You can't, Nicodemus. You can't do this by yourself. You're going to need somebody who's going to be able to do it for you. But I'll tell you what, I'll do that. This is not something you can do. It's something that I can do. Indeed, I am going to be lifted up. And yes, there is a double meaning there. Jesus knows he's going to be lifted up onto a cross. He knows that, but he's also going to, he's referring not only to his crucifixion, but his ascension. He's going to be lifted up into the heavenlies as well. He's going to be lifted firstly up to a cross, and in doing that, he will glorify the Father. Eventually, he will ascend to heaven as well. He will be exalted. So there is that double meaning. And if you believe that, if you believe that, you can have eternal life. A big theme in, in John is the theme of belief, trust, faith. You simply have to believe I am who I say I am and that I do what I say I'll do. If you believe that about Jesus, you will be saved. You will enter into eternal life. 
Well, sometimes there comes a moment where we have an opportunity in sharing God's story where we're going to somehow have to explain the gospel. And for many, this is perhaps the scariest part, how to do it justice. And you're thinking, oh, I probably should start with Genesis, yes? Or maybe John 3.16. Do I start with the fact that everything was perfect once and then it got soiled? Do I start with the fact that Jesus came? Where do I start? And, and it, can be, it can be, I guess, a little bit perplexing at times. Um, there are many, many themes and yet, there is a single and a very simple message when it comes to explaining the gospel. And you probably know more about this than you're currently thinking you do. And I'll explain in a moment. There are many, many different methods. And maybe as a young Christian, you've been with some organization or another, and, and you've learned a particular method of explaining the gospel. And you know, hey, Simple is good. If, you, if there's a little, little way that you know of how to explain the gospel and it's in your head, great. But if somebody does ask you, could you please give an account for the faith that you have within? Tell me, how is it that, you, that I could become a Christian? I want to share with you this morning just a way in which you could do that. Um, I guess when we're looking through, through Scripture and so forth... Um, after Jesus, arguably the most prominent evangelist is Paul. And, and so I'm going to share with you just a, a little way of explaining the Christian faith by using, by using the words of Paul. In fact, we're going to, to learn a little way of, of sharing the gospel with somebody else that actually relates to a number of pictures that, that Paul gives in his second letter to the Corinthians between chapters 2 to 5. Do you reckon you might know what those pictures are? Well, if you're new to EBC, no, and uh, something is going to happen in a moment which is, which is strange and troubling and perhaps a little bit cultish, but stay with us. Don't run out the door because we have coffee later, um, but, but, but I know that many of you actually probably, if you cast your mind back, remember a number of these little, little pictures. Um, so why don't you stand up with me and we'll, we'll go, go through them and... Um, Yes, participation. Oh, what, what cruel pastor have you got? All right, do you remember these pictures? Do you remember the first one? I, I mentioned it just a minute ago. It's a huge cup of... And the significance is the coffee. No, it's not. It's, it's the aroma that comes from the, from the coffee. So we've got a huge cup of coffee, and it's got a beautiful aroma um, coming, coming out of it. And, and already you're all prepped for the break, aren't you? All right. Spoiling this cup of coffee, just a tad, is, is what? It's got a torch in it. Now, who would do such a thing? I don't know. It's criminal. It should be. But there's a, there's a torch in this cup of, cup of coffee. And on top of the torch is a... A veil. You could you could picture a, like a wedding veil, or you know, on a bride, or I don't know, some other type of veil, like a like just something that's covering the eyes. Now, here is where, and I'm sorry about this. I just couldn't think of another way to do it. Here is where actually I'm, I'm going to have to mix them up. You know how I I had the veil drooping over the torch so that it didn't didn't get stained by the coffee. Let's stain it, people. Let's stain it. Let's stain the veil. Take the torch from under the veil, put the veil in the coffee, put the torch down on the veil. Baptize that veil. Are you with me? Yes. 
Feeling vicious? All right. Okay, there, thank you. All right, we're getting our veils dirty because it's, it'll become apparent why we, why we need to reverse those pictures. Quite apart that actually that's the way that Paul does it, but uh, I, I tricked you all this time. All right, so we've got our cup of coffee, beautiful aroma. We've got our veil now dripped in the coffee, baptized in the coffee. We've got a torch holding it down. Which isn't a bad way, next baptism service, actually, to hold people down longer. But that's another thought. All right, so we've got our torch. Now, what would have been on, on the veil? What would have held it to the torch? A clay pot or a clay jar. Okay, well, that is now balanced on the, on the, top, of the, of the top of the torch. Okay, we've got our clay jar or pot there. All right, and uh, on top of the clay pot is a... Is a tent. That's right. We had a tent pitched up there. Beautiful. And in the, in the uh, doorway of the tent, there was, it was unzipped. And there, astoundingly, but true story, was a, a globe, like a, 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 um, uh, you know, a little spinning globe that you're going to have in your, in your house or something like that of the world. And we're thinking of a new creation there. Okay. We're going to stop with the ambassador because that's actually the job that we're doing, uh, being am- ambassadors of, of God. All right. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and one tell those pictures all the way up with the tricky little reversal and the other one all the way down. Okay, I'm glad you're able to review the stack. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So remember, we're talking about different ways in which we can, we can explain the gospel to, to somebody. Um, a couple of things that's it's helpful to remember when we do this. Yes, there are many, many themes, many, many different approaches. I, I remember when I first went off to Bible college, discovering that there was Theology A, which was going to go for an entire year, two semesters. Once I got past that, there was Theology B and, and so forth. I thought, there's really, there's so much to know about God. There really is. And then all it did was actually give me more questions, better questions than the questions I previously had. I, I realized at the end of, and I think, I think this means I passed, I realized at the end of my theology how little I really knew. And I think that gets you a pass. Um, if you think you know it all, that is definitely a fail. And so, yes, there are many, many themes, and yet don't be, don't be troubled. When it comes to the gospel, there is still a simple message. And remember, it is about faith and and it's God's words or God's story being spoken through you. Remember how Jesus would, would counter the devil and, and in terms of um, uh, uh, being effective, he would very, very simply say, it is written. It is written. Um, Jesus, when giving, giving an account, would often go back to Scripture. He trusted Scripture. This was, this was the, um, uh, the, the living Logos Actually, actually using um, the words of Scripture himself to uh, defend the faith and help people to understand the nature of the gospel that he was preaching. And so the words of Scripture are very powerful when it comes to sharing the gospel. It's, it's hard to get by them. Remember um, that we are ultimately a people who are led by the Spirit. So with any formula or any method or anything like that, um, it's just to think of it as a, something of a discussion starter. In other words, as you share principles of the gospel and as you, as you share the words of Scripture, don't, don't worry if you know, somebody doesn't fall straight to their knees, you know, kind of saying, you know, right now, I need, it's, it's okay if, if they don't want to get baptized and, and, and commissioned for mission all in the one conversation. Um, it might actually be that you are starting a process that could take 
years. Be led by the Spirit. What must you do? Be led by the Spirit of God. Okay? All right, just, just notice that with the woman at the well, in this instance, in verse 40, you know, his initial, his initial words, just, just the way that he was interacting with her, uh, piques her interest. She realizes that, that he is no ordinary person. He is definitely a prophet, maybe more. He's just claimed to be the Messiah. And she actually runs into town. Um, leaving, leaving her jar there, verse 39 tells us many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And, and he stayed another uh, couple of days. Because of his words, many, many became believers. Now, the interesting thing is, this was astounding that Jesus would stay in Samaria. I mean, this was, this was incredible, absolutely incredible. It blew away every custom of the day, but Jesus wasn't interested in the customs of the day. He was interested in doing the will of the Father. Um, so this might just be a discussion starter. You might get an invitation to actually stay over a couple of days. And then if you are, you are just sort of thinking to yourself, okay, oh boy, I remember Stuart talking me through. I remember the pictures. We've got a, we've got a bride dipped in coffee or something held down by a torch. And I, I was all confusing. I don't know what to do. It's all right. Be at peace. Be at peace. You can go to our website. And as you go to our website, is this, is this sort of... Yeah, there we are. As you go to our website, about us, you can go to this little bit here. How can we know God? You can click on there. Maybe you have an iPhone. Maybe you have some other device. Or maybe you can even just send the person a link and say, listen, this is, I, I, I can see that this is a genuine question. You're truly interested. Maybe I'll send you this link and you can, you can have a read. And so if you go to our link, you'll see, you'll see virtually the, the pictures and the gospel explained just as, as the way we have been, been learning. It starts out with this little how can we know God? Starts out with this little thing. So what's the story with God? That is, what's God's story? Um, in 2009, a survey of social attitudes, in, in a 2009 survey of social attitudes, around 71% of Australians stated that they believe in God or a higher power. Just over 50% believed in life after death into heaven, and around 40% believed in miracles. I don't know if, if that rings true or whether those statistics surprise you, but it but the interesting thing is that there are a lot of people who believe something, yet many people are confused about who exactly he, God, is, and if he exists, what does that mean for everyday life? Well, here's a few common questions about knowing God and some answers from the Bible. Do you recognize that first picture? Ha <laughs> there it is. Is that how you had it pictured in your head? Well, here's the first question. Is it possible to really know God? Yes, it is. Answer. Yes, it is. In fact, it is actually possible to be friends with God and to bring him joy and, like a fragrance, even please him. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, Our lives are Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. Now that, with each of these questions, it might spurn another question. Somebody might ask, what does it mean to be saved or perishing? Hang on, what's, what's this bit about? And you, you might, at that point, you know, diverge. Or you might just simply go on. A lot of people do bad things. Surely not everyone brings God joy and pleases him. 
Answer correct. The, the Bible says that we have been blinded to spiritual things. It's like a veil prevents us from seeing. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So yes, that's why not everybody understands the gospel. And yes, that's why people do bad things. And not everybody lives a life that is pleasing to God. Now, another question. Well, how then can anyone perceive God if we are blinded like this, if the God of this age has blinded us? How then can anyone perceive God? Answer, well, the same God who in the beginning said, let there be light, can also make his light shine in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of of Jesus Christ. Again, that's a verse that might spawn a whole whole host of different questions. It might be about creation and God who said, yes, let there be light, the power of his words and how his words can bring about life, all sorts of things. Or it might be a matter of simply moving on. Well, what is it like to have God light up your heart? On the outside, we may not look any different. But inside, there's the most wonderful treasure. The life of Jesus is now alive in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 11 says, We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. Um, well, what happens when I die? Answer, your present body is like a tent, just a temporary dwelling. The real you, that is the inner you, will live forever in a new body. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. What does it mean to have Jesus live in me? Well, you are a whole new being. It's the ultimate reset. The old life is gone and a new eternal life begins. That's the life that brings God joy and pleases him, which, which we spoke about earlier. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And then here's just a series of questions that would naturally stem from that verse, that, that notion of this old life, new life. Um, but what about the bad stuff that I've done? If you belong to Christ, God will no longer count your sins against you. You're forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. How can he do that? Well, Jesus Christ offered to take our sin so that we can be made right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God 
through Christ. Do I have to earn this by being good or something? No, it's God's gift to you. Just accept it. And all of this is a gift from God. And then lastly, somebody might, might ask this, this question. Well, how do I accept all of this, this gift from God? Um, make this new life and friendship with, with God happen or make it possible? How do I do that? Well, just tell God that's your decision. Talk to him, prayer, and make these answers, the answers that you've just been reading through, make these answers your answers. For example, you, you could pray, Dear God, I want to have a friendship with you, the type that would bring you joy and please you. You've been veiled from me long enough, and I need your light to shine in my heart. I want the treasure of Jesus to live in me so that I may live forever with you. I want to be made new. I want to give up that old life. I'm sorry that I have sinned, but I accept the author of Jesus to take my sin for me so that I can be made right with you. Thank you for no longer counting my sin against me. I hereby accept this new life as a gift from you. Let it, let it be. So that is, that is a explanation of the gospel. Are there other ways to approach it, other themes? Yes, there are. But in terms of one that we've been learning and in terms of some pictures that you might just be able to recall to mind, and in terms of perhaps even a gospel, a simple gospel outline that you can, you can actually access fairly easily, um, that, is, that is available um, to us. And, and hopefully over the last five weeks there will be something in there that resonates and you think, yeah, 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 I know that. I've, I've, I've got that. Does it answer every question? No, 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 not at all. Um, and uh, there are so many, so many more questions, but it could be a starter. And then it's a matter of, remember, notice, listen, share. It's a matter of continuing to do that, to be listening to God and, and listening to the person. If, if some of their objections are, you, you know, ones that, that but this is coming from Scripture, can I trust the Bible? Then remember, I, I recommended to you the site of Cold, Christian, cold Case Christianity. And uh, it was a, a cold case detective in LA who's also a teacher at Biola College, but ac actually an, an uh, active um, uh, homicide detective as well. And he's applied his skill to, to understanding these questions. And he gives a very, very good case for the Bible and other things as well. There's, there's a place for, for apologetics and so forth and helping people through some of those, those answers. Well... I hope that's an encouragement, encouragement to you, and and that um, you are able to, you are able to uh, feel a little bit more equipped and empowered to be able to share your faith with others. As I as I say, a number of you have already had um, God appointed homework. I want to finish today and finish really this series by just alerting you to one other rather encouraging little aspect of this beautiful story of, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Again, the context is the disciples have gone, gone into town and they arrive back to find this astounding scenario of Jesus talking with a Samaritan and a woman. And uh, 
the first thing that seems to pop into their mind, having filled their bellies and, and you know, armed with some takeaway from town and so forth, including the latest chocolate shake, they, they arrive and they say, well, you know, would you, would you like some, some food, um, Jesus? And, and they urged him to, to eat something. But Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Now, did that mean that Jesus never ate? No, he ate. He ate and he enjoyed food, of course. But on this occasion, there was a joy and there was something that was just bubbling up within him. And he didn't need the food that the disciples had. He would not entrust himself to men or the cheeseburger that they had. Instead, he was riding on this joy of something else. And it must have had the disciples absolutely baffled. But he says to them, um, John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This was a joy that Jesus was experiencing right there in that moment that was inexplicable. The disciples didn't even, they were just kind of have, trying to get their heads around it. But, but Jesus found fulfilling the will of the Father, doing what his Father would have him do, far exceeded anything that this life could offer. Here was Jesus fully satisfied because in his spirit, he was experiencing the joy of doing his Father's will. And nothing, nothing compares there was no food the, the disciples could have offered him in that moment that would have fulfilled him more. His food was to do the will of him who sent me and to, to finish his work. There are, there are perhaps a couple of things there to note in finishing. Firstly, we are sent. Jesus understood that he was sent from the Father. And as the Father sent me, so I send you. We too are a sent people. Every day we are sent into the world. What to do? To finish his work. The father has unfinished work, unfinished business with this world. Why does he not kind of wrap it all up and say, time, that's really enough. Whoa, I can see what's happening in this country and that country and this household and this marriage and this life. And you know what? It grieves me. Let's just call it a wrap. Why? There's unfinished work. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. That's your father's heart. There's more work to be done. And every day that the sun rises, there's a whole new day of activity in which the father is reaching out to those who are lost. Jesus understood that and it was immensely satisfying. And, and every day too, we can embrace that sent nature of, of saying, all right, God, what have you got for me today? And have that anticipation that we are joining him in his work. And then in verse 35, for those days and those moments where you feel like, man, Australia is kind of a tough mission field. I mean, tough like crusty tough. Like really difficult to dig into. Like nobody is open to spiritual things. You can feel that way. But that's not the truth. Do you know what the truth is? John 4.35, open your eyes, says Jesus. Notice, notice. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. So what did Jesus see that we so often don't see? 
Well, I think his attention was drawn to, to his father's work and activity. His attention was drawn to the ripeness of the harvest. And he knew that if he did it the father's way, there would be fruit. There would be fruit. And so we are, over the next month on mission, together, your family, friends, neighbors, workmates, people you meet, and by way of extension, a little group of us who are going to be representing EBC in Greece as well. All of it to the ends of the earth, all of it, a part of what God wants to do through Eltham Baptist Church. Do you remember the word that Liz had for us last week? A woman, a woman in labor, and, and, it, and it was like the birth was imminent. Are we ready for the birth? God is at work powerfully. He will have homework for you this week. There will be opportunities. He wants to send you into his world, indeed to the ends of the earth, wherever that might be for you. And he wants to use you as he reaches out to the lost to finish his work. It is an unfinished business. Do you want to join him? Do you want to help finish the father's work? That's his invitation to us today. And that's really takes us, would you believe it, hold back your applause just for a moment, would you believe it, that brings us to a finish of the E being envoys of grace in the acrostic abide. All right, you may now clap. <laughs> and I've got four weeks to think up something else. <laughs> Bless you. We're there. We're there. Do you feel it? It should be this sigh of relief. <laughs> Let's all stand together and pray, hey? The band can come up. Just before you close your eyes, look at these words abide, fruit. Glory, they've been good key words to lead us, haven't they, for the last decade, <laughs> couple of years, but we're there. And you could do this as well as I could. As disciples of Jesus Christ, John 15, 8, we want to live lives, fruitful lives that bring the Father much glory. We want to bring our Father glory. That's what we do as disciples of Jesus Christ. How? Fruitful lives. Lives abundant with the fruit of Jesus Christ dwelling within us. And fruit is the inevitability of abiding. Remember the A, all together, don't do this alone. Remember the B, take time to be still. Remember the I, to imitate Jesus Christ. He's given you a fabulous model. Remember the D, I'm going to express it in a moment over coffee. Our devotion to one another. Look out for one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. And remember the E. You are his instruments of grace. He chooses you to be his envoys of grace, his ambassadors, to represent him so that he can make his appeal through you. And as we abide in him, the promise is he will, not rhetorical, abide in us. Maybe we need to go back to that one. Okay, that's all right. My bad, my bad. Teacher's responsibility. Jesus, thank you. We love you. You are the vine. We are the branches. 
If a person remains in you, you promise to remain in them. As we abide in you, you promise to abide in us and bear much fruit. Lord, we want to be people who live lives that are fruitful for you and bring our Father glory. We want that to be. So please, hear the cry of our hearts. Help us. No matter what happens, through thick and thin, through good or bad, yes, like wedding vows, in sickness and in health, no matter what comes our way, help us, help us, help us, please, Jesus, to abide in you. We must abide in you. And we receive the promise that as we do, you will abide in us. And all the Lord's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.